is Speaking of Faith, and I'm Trent Gillis, the online editor for the show. One of the great things about working on SOF is being able to sit in on Krista's interviews. They move in such unexpected and spontaneous ways. And coming out of this one, we all felt excited about the show with Mehmet Oz. But to fit into an hour of radio, we had to edit the material mercilessly. We'd like you to hear what we did in the studio, so here's the entire conversation. Enjoy. do some peas for me, Peter Piper. Peter Piper picked the pickle, pickled peppers. How does it sound in Minnesota? I think, do you have the AC on there? No, nope. so we just turned it off. No, it's not on. What are you hearing? It's kind of noisy is all. Really? I don't hear any noise. All right, Okay, well, testing I'll... one, two, three. It's, it's actually pretty quiet in this room, I think. Yeah. Larry's rustling around. I'm going to go uh, up front in the control room and see uh, what I hear. Stand by. How are you? Dr. <laughs> oh, can I talk? Should I talk? My Hi, Dr. Oz? Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Okay. This is Krista Tippett. Nice to meet you, so to speak. Um, That's right. <laughs> I wish I had a picture of you. <laughs> well, I have all kinds of pictures of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... Let me okay, okay. I hear an echo, Mitch. Is that they probably haven't really settled in, have they? Yeah, let, let's let Larry try to adjust his level. I, I want to hear you say your first name Mehmet. Mehmet, all right. Uh, did, my mother would say Mehmet. Okay, I'd so like to say it that way, but no, 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 that's actually, I mean, I, I don't say it that way uh, in part because folks have trouble, but if you can say Mehmet, that's perfect. Okay, does anyone else call you that? Say it that way. Uh, people who know me well, if they take the time, will do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but f- frequently uh, in, in English, that H is a difficult... Well, people don't... There aren't words like that in English. Yeah. So well, I actually learned a lot about uh, speaking this past year when I was making the show Discovery. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I have a lazy tongue because of my Turkish upbringing. Oh. And wor- you don't use the tip of your tongue against the back of your palate in Turkish. Hmm. Yeah, it's all guttural talk. You know, you talk from the back of your mouth. So Mehmet is a is a open sound that doesn't come up in English. Yeah. Well, I, um, wait. I'm just looking at Mitch across the glass. I I don't want to talk about anything substantive until we're rolling, in case we say I, something I, that I, matters. But I understand. I do want to. You. I did you grow up in this country? But you're. I spent. I spent from. My birth till I was 18, three quarters of my life almost exactly in this country and a quarter in Turkey. And the reason for that is uh, we would spend long blocks of time in the summers in mm-hmm. Turkey. Usually June, July, and August in their entirety would be in Istanbul okay. or one of the towns in Turkey. Right. And I was doing almost all my schooling here. Okay. Well, now, before we... Let's see. I mean, they're still conferring. How do we like the levels? Ooh. Uh, Larry, it's a lot... Um, there's a lot more noise than, than actual signal coming down the line. Sorry, right, stand by. 
Do you can I tell you anything about the program? Have you heard the program in New York or? I, I, I've heard of the program, I, and I probably have heard it, but I just never paid attention to what it was called. So if yeah. you could describe it, it would be helpful, Krista. Well, I can tell from what I've read about you that you're a pretty busy person, so <laughs> I'm not going to take it personally <laughs> if you haven't heard my hour of radio. <laughs> um, well, it's called Speaking of Faith. We've been a national weekly program on public radio stations for about a year. Uh, we're that's it. Krista? Yeah, I'm sorry. You want me to be quiet, Mitch? Okay. I have to be quiet. Okay, Krista. <laughs> we just need uh, Dr. Oz to speak. All right. So I'm, I was talking to Krista and trying to learn a little bit more about Speaking of Faith, her show that's been on uh, for, I guess, a year. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about integrated care and the role of pr- um, religion and healing mm-hmm. and faith in healing. You t- Tell me about your association with Penny George, with the George Family Foundation. Do, do you know Penny or is... Of course. Yeah. Penny, I, I know Penny through Bill initially mm-hmm. um, because Bill ran Medtronic Corporation, which oh, right. uh, so has you, been yeah. a, it's a, it's a large medical device company, but yeah. the reason I, I was interested in them is because they have a corporate credo, yeah. which I, you've probably read, which is spectacular yeah. and allows folks Earl work Bakken for the company. Earl wrote that. Exactly. Yeah. Earl, who I, I, I know well and I've been to visit, mm-hmm. uh, but but Earl started it because he felt that the, the met, people representing Medtronic should be doing good in their communities as well as selling Medtronic goods. And that corporate culture um, really affects every element of what Medtronic does. And Penny George, uh, besides Medtronic having its own foundation, Penny and Bill started the George Family Foundation. Penny's had some med- medical challenges of her own, as you probably know. Yeah. And grew through those. And uh, I had the opportunity of doing some panels with her at the World Economic Forum and as well uh, visiting Mirabelle at a, at a retreat that we had a few years back where we try to figure out how we get philanthropy involved in integrative medicine. Oh, so you were part of that collaborative, that group she put together originally? To yes. Adv- okay. I think, she, I think she called us the posse. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now it's coming <laughs> together. Yeah. They've been, they're good friends and have been great supporters of ours. So what I was going to say about the show, maybe one way you could imagine it is we're, we're doing something, so it's sort of a parallel effort in public radio to what you're doing in medicine. <laughs> we're opening people's horizons to the fact that, that religious and spiritual impulses are, are part of life, are part of what it means to be human, and they're in the news, and, they, and that these traditions have perspectives and ideas and vocabularies and, and practices to offer to all the important challenges you know, in our common life, whether they're political or scientific or how we deal with matters of life and death. So, so that's what we're doing. And we take on any number of subjects, uh, and we want to do a program on healing. And actually, I had heard about you, and uh, we sat down with Penny a couple a month or so ago, and she also strongly recommended that we grab you. So, well, think, very kind of you to invite me. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be part of this. All right. Well, and, but and I always I I will also say that the method of the show. One thing that I think has gone wrong in. St- speech about religion or spirituality in our public life is that people have often stood up and spoken for an entire tradition or for God or, you know, we, what, what I try to trace is the intersection of these kinds of ideas and real human experiences. And I own, you know, everyone who's on the program, no matter what kind of an expert there is only speaking for themselves and for what they know through their experience and their work and life. So I want to encourage you to speak in the first person, which you do in your book, and, um, you know, bring stories into it. 
So I just want to say one thing. Yeah. Got um, we might need him to, to bring his headphones down a little bit more. Okay. Um, M- Mitch is asking if you could maybe bring the volume of your headphones down a little bit. Sure. Keep talking. It seemed, okay. you know, I didn't set them, but it, it seemed a bit loud. Now I, have, now I hear an echo, that, though. Oh, you hear an echo. What is uh, that? That's probably because I was deafening. I, I can, mm-hmm. if it doesn't bother the program, I can continue. Well, the echo can be very annoying. I, how, how is that? Is that better? Oh, now I'm hearing I'm doing, the echo again. What's that? Let, let me hear you. Let me hear you. Okay. Let me, I, I, you can, are you hearing your echo? I don't hear an echo anymore. Okay. Oh, actually, that's not true. I hear it. <laughs> it's back. Oh, that's The funny. echo is the echo is back. I'm turning down your volume now. You're turning down my volume. How can? Why don't you? Uh, gosh, I'm still hearing that echo in mine. He'll need to turn his down more. Can you turn uh, yours uh, down uh, a little yeah, more? Of course. Okay. Okay, Chris, say something um, now. All right. Let's see. What was I? I think I'm not hearing anymore. I think we're okay. All right. How about I, you? I can hear you. Uh, yeah. Let me say one, two, three, four. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hear a little echo, but hmm. it's not. All right, sir. Yes. There's a little black button in front. Little black button? Yeah. Earphone plug in. I don't see a black. I see a, I see a cough talk back. I no, see... the side, in the front of it, front of the box. Oh, yeah. I've been turning that down. Should I turn it down some more? Yeah. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Please. Okay. All right. How about that? Do you still hear the echo? I'm not hearing anything anymore. The talk. Yeah. Nobody's talking to you. I th- Chris, the talk. Hey, let's see. <laughs> um, I, what, what do you want me to say? Let's see. I did have a very late breakfast. Um, Just so he can make sure that the headphones are working. Okay. Um, I, I, how are I, I can hear you, you Chris. Me? All right. Yeah, let me say something. One, two, Tell- three, four. Okay. I have, I have, I hear no echo anymore. I'm fine. All right. Okay. I think we're good. Let's. We've gotten. We've gotten started a little bit late. Tell me when you need to go. When you have to leave the no, studio. I'll, we'll do the. We'll do the show. Okay. Well, I, we'll, I, we'll try I to go less start. Than an hour. Yeah. Yeah, we can go as long as you need me to go. Okay. I can. Uh, I, I was actually. I. I'd like to leave by three thirty. Oh well, that's fine. So that's fine. an hour and. Th- yeah. yeah. So I just. But I thought if we start exactly at two thirty, then we'll have a twenty minute delay, oh. and then. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. And we'll be uh, we'll get you out of there before 3:30. Okay. okay. Um now, I will say in everything I've read of yours, I don't see much about uh the religious background of your life and I'm so I'm I'm just I'd like to, I'm wondering about that with your Turkish uh heritage. Were you raised Muslim or secular or Christian or none of the above? I was raised Muslim. Mm-hmm. I, 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 if we're, are we going? Should I talk about yeah, this? Or? Yeah, yeah, we're going. Oh, okay. So I was raised uh, in a family uh, that was actually completely split and re- in many ways reflects uh, the reality of, of religion in Turkey. My father's family was a very poor family uh, from the central uh, southern plains uh, of Turkey in the so-called Koran Belt. Mm. which is uh, the area just south of Konya, where the whirling dervishes right. uh, came from. Uh, the Sufi poet Rumi was uh, lived most of his life in Konya, and that tradition was apparent uh, as I grew uh, and lived in that area. It was, these folks spent a lot of their lives thinking about how religion played a role in, in their existence. My mother's family is a very affluent family, um, was from Istanbul, uh, mo- much more westernized and much less willing t- to have religion play an important role in their lives. And neither family was happy or sad because of their uh, ex- existing bias. And both families were spiritual in their own way. But uh, I was exposed to 
learning prayers by rote when I was with my father's side of the family mm -hmm. and uh, trying to figure out what the best restaurants were when I was with my mother's side of the family. <laughs> and uh, these different experiences did uh, color my existence a bit in part because uh, the, the, the way that religion deals with the state and deals with people in Turkey, um, especially in a religion like Islam, which is such an encompassing one, uh, fascinated me. And when I uh, would come back to the States, which where I spent um, most of my time for schooling, I saw a very different view of religion. Uh, I saw Protestants and Catholics uh, practicing religion and using it as a, as a, in a very different way than the Muslims were, at least on my father's side of the family. And just to say a little bit more about that, I'm interested in what you mean when you say that. Well, we, we would have, uh, in the private school that I attended, chapel in the morning, every morning. Yeah, in the uh, States. In the States. Yeah. And I, perhaps because I was a child and saw this as sort of a, you know, a mechanism of getting kids to think a little bit about religion, but not a very effective one. Um, I, I grew to think that the use of religion in that context was not particularly effective. I mean, after all, if the main purpose of religion is to get through a few phrases and maybe one hymn so you can get on to the rest of the day, um, I don't think, even if when it's forced upon you, that it has the kind of benefit that uh, a more profound view of spirituality could afford you. On the other hand, I saw in Turkey use of religion, uh, which truly colored every moment of their lives, especially during this, uh, at that time, they were having the fasting period of Ramadan was during the summers. It's for, mm -hmm. It seemed like it was always in the summer when I was a child. And of course, <laughs> the summer, the days are long and you're thirsty. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I saw similar challenges in religion there because the, the prayers were in a language that, that was different from the spoken language. So you couldn't even understand the words you were saying unless you're willing to take the time to learn them. And uh, so it was not difficult when, you, when you're searching for religion as you grow through the teen years to, to become uh, despondent that, in fact, organized religion offers no real insights uh, that would play a value in life. Uh, but there are always those individuals, for example, my father's oldest brother, who was the, became the patriarch of the family, uh, who was a hajja. You know, he'd been to Mecca. He hmm. knew the religion very well. And he had you know, beautiful insights into what a spiritual life could afford you. They were independent of the the rote memorization that I initially associated with Islam. And that I saw also in the States when folks were uh, using Christianity as a uh, as a, a you know a, a, a class setting event and right. not really letting it involve their lives. You have written that um, since I was a child, the heart was the vital organ that riveted my interest both in a physical sense and as an image. Now, tell me about that. And did that intersect at all with these spiritual spiritual images that you had around you? Well, as uh, as difficult as it, may, as it may seem to comprehend, part of my allure to medicine was a religious one. Hmm. Uh, it was a search for meaning at its most profound level. I didn't think you could really understand the world around you if you didn't understand your own body. And so this almost narcissistic drive to learn about what made me tick made me that much more interested in medicine. And as you go through the process of, of training to, to be a physician, there are these eureka moments, these aha moments that occur, particularly in the early years of medical school, where you realize some insight into existence that you didn't expect and all of a sudden it smacks you upside your head 
And the heart did that to me. I remember the first time I saw this incredibly powerful organ twisting and turning in the chest cavity of, a, of an individual whose life was threatened from its failure. And you remember that the heart doesn't empty blood like a balloon letting out air. That's a very uh, you know, bland view of how the heart functions. It's much more elegant than that. It twists the blood out of it the way you would wring water from a towel. Hmm. And you watch this muscle twisting and turning. It looked like a cobra. Uh, you know, being tamed by the physician who was managing it. And when I saw this organ, I realized why it plays such an important role in our poetry, why it dominates our religion, mm. uh, why we associate the soul and love uh, with a muscle. <laughs> and I've dedicated my life to trying to figure out what that allure is, uh, and in particular, how to, to help folks who are challenged with this illness. I, this is probably a diversion, but I just I can't help but go into this. I mean, it, it strikes me that you... you um your Turkish, your father's side of the family lived in sort of Sufi territory, the Islamic mystical tradition. And there's so much in that tradition about love poetry and analogy between, I'm, and, the, and you know, what the images that we associate with the heart and the deepest forms of spirituality. I mean, was there any kind of direct connection with that for you? I don't know if I can make that link, but I can say that, that music was an important part. Rhythm was an important part uh, of the tradition. Mm-hmm. And the heart is our internal metronome. From the moment we are eight weeks of age in our mother's uterus, it's what's beating that defines life in, still in many cultures. And uh, it was not lost upon me that this rhythmic element to the heart uh, re- was reflected in, in many of the religious and even healing traditions, um, particularly in Central Asia, uh, where the Turkic tribes uh, evolved from. So I don't know per se if I can tie it to Sufism, but I, I'm just to recall the, the, the perhaps the most famous phrase uh, of uh, the Sufi poet Rumi, uh, that of the reed hearkening. Which you quote Yes, I do quote yeah. it, but it, the reed whistles, uh, and it does naturally because it has a hollow in, in its tube, but the reason it's whistling is because it longs to be together with... with its origins, where it came from. And in many ways, for, for, for humans, and I see this a lot in, in my patients, and perhaps we'll get to this because they're right on the brink. They're, they're crawling, cr- just trying to stay out of that abyss of death. And you, you see this desire for them to become one, uh, one with the creator, one with mankind, one with uh, the, an understanding of what their existence is about. And that resolution um, is... I think, sometimes found through medicine. And I do think the Sufi religion in particular uh, affords that to, 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 to many folks. But as you say in in what you write, um, that's, that's not a, a focus that Western medicine has defined for itself or, or laid out for itself until perhaps recently. I mean, and you had a very traditional, respectable medical, American medical education, right? You went to Harvard Medical School? I went to Harvard College and actually okay. played football there. Oh, okay. Things. I, <laughs> Sorry, I, I went to wrong. No, but it's... Uh, and then from there, I uh, I went to... Amazing, crazy as it sounds, I, I went to a joint MD-MBA program at University of Pennsylvania and Wharton Business okay. School. And my right. interest there was was to try to find out how how we could best invest society's resources to build value through health. And, and the bigger picture here is you, you really can't have a wealthy society unless you're a healthy society. And how you get at health is more than just hospital beds and doctor's education. And I, I know we'll touch on this, but in the traditional medical uh, training, you're told early on 
to divorce yourself or to pretend that the mind and the body are not connected, that you can take the organs as solitary entities, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, the pancreas, the, uh, the brain, and study them uh, by themselves, pretending that they're not interconnected, nor are they under one more global entity that you might call the spirit or the soul. And that process is very effective for teaching people a science-based, organ-based approach to, to medicine. It's not an effective tool for dealing with patients if you forget that early warning you get in medical school that they are interrelated and that you must deal with them as a whole. And so we spend much of our lives taking care of the science of a particular organ and not enough time focused uh, on the patient. In other words, succinctly stated, we treat the disease, not the patient. And and I want to know, was there a time maybe when you were first a student when that approach seemed sufficient to you? Oh, it, it seemed not only sufficient when I was training, but uh, it, it was the it was the ideal uh, idyllic existence because you could really learn it. I mean, how wonderful right. it is to to really think you know everything there is to know about the heart and the lungs and the kidneys. And in fact, you get to that point uh, of arrogance usually in your third year of medical school, and it's your third year because you have spent two years doing nothing but studying. I mean, there are whole gaps in my life existence right. because you would get engulfed in this process. And it wasn't a, a, an onerous task. You actually enjoyed learning about how the body worked. You'd dream about how the body worked. And then, and then you're faced with the reality of dealing with people. And they don't read the same books you read. They have real problems that are different from the ones that you've been studying because they deal with the interaction of these different organ systems. And you're forced to come to, to, to this reality. I'm reminded, actually, as a story that is in uh, Healing from the Heart about a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Well, tell that story. And, so that was at the end of your residency, right? This was, this was the... towards the end of my residency. Mm-hmm. And I, now, remember, just to put this in context, you, you, you finish your medical school training and you, they start calling you Dr. Oz and you keep looking around for who that person is. <laughs> right. And it takes about a year for it to sink in that you actually are the guy they're calling for. And uh, by the time you've gotten to your third or fourth year of, medical tr- of uh, surgical training, you're actually starting to become the team leader. And there was a Jehovah's Witness uh, who was brought into the emergency room having a bleeding ulcer. A problem that we actually do a pretty good job dealing with these days. But she was a smallish woman, and by the time she'd come to see us, she had lost almost all of her blood. So the solution is pretty obvious. You rush her to the operating room, fix the bleeding ulcer by putting a suture in it, but you have to give her blood uh, in order to have something to carry the oxygen around the body to keep her going. It's just straightforward, simple, the ABCs of medicine. And the family... Uh, when, I, when I came in to talk to her, said that they didn't think she'd want the blood. And I said, well, that's good and all, but you, know, you realize we're not kidding around here. She's going to die if she doesn't get this blood. So uh, I rushed her off to the operating room. And uh, after having given the patient's family and her a pep talk about the fact that we needed to get the blood into her, and she had become unconscious by now. So uh, while she was off there, I, I made this last plea to the family. And I said, I'm going to do this surgery. and I'll be back to get your permission. You need to sign these forms so I can give the blood. So I went off and did the operation. By now, her blood count, uh, hematocrit, was about four, which, by the way, healthy baboons, healthy animals start dying at a blood count of nine. Hmm. She was at four. She should already have died. Hmm. And she was already having evidence of her heart and other organs failing because they didn't have enough blood in them. So I came out to get the permission from the family, and I was horrified to find that they're unanimous in their decision not to do this. They were condemning their mother and grandmother, to death. And I was, I was flabbergasted. And only then did I really 
have the epiphany. They weren't telling me that they didn't believe me. They weren't telling me that they didn't love their grandmother or mother. What they're telling me is there was a, a deeper love, a deeper belief that, that transcended what I was telling them that by which they were living their lives. Mm-hmm. And that no matter how logical it seemed that they should get the blood, they didn't want the blood. Well, of course, as the story turns out, uh, the woman who uh, was going to die that evening hung out for another day and then another day and then another day and she finally went home. And she never did get that blood. And although I would never recommend that in the future for someone not to get the blood, it was to me a very revealing experience because I began to recognize that as dogmatic as I thought I could be with my knowledge base, there were certain elements of the healing process I could not capture. And even if I was right in the science, I could be wrong in the spirit. So did her recovery really defy what you had been learning all those years in medical school? Her recovery made no sense at all. And and I don't want to get into the issue of why she recovered because Mm -hmm. there's so many hypotheses you could offer for that. But without any question, she was the first in a long series of patients. Because, you know, once you realize this is happening around you, you start paying attention a little differently. You start picking up subtle clues from patients who may not be willing to share their spiritual burden with you. But now that you've expressed interest, they're willing to do that. And that, be, for me, became a, a wonderful trip, especially as I began to specialize in heart surgery, in particular, some of the sickest types of heart surgery with heart transplantation and mechanical heart devices. Here's our people whose hearts have rejected them. In fact, they're living Their hearts have rejected war. them. Is their hearts have quit on them. Exactly. Their okay. hearts think that they have quit on them, that they have rejected them. And so... They have to live their lives realizing that at least one of their organs doesn't think they're worthy of living. This Hmm. is, by the way, how many of these folks internalize this Hmm. process. And when you realize that and you begin to deal head on with the guilt, the shame, uh, the frustration, the anger that these folks bring to you when they need to get a new heart or they are dying of heart disease, you you then get a much more robust view of the role that some of these alternative and spiritual modalities may provide your patients. Now, yeah, I mean, one thing that strikes me is that you are, and it seems that you always have been, working, as you say, at the cutting edge. You're working in extreme cases. You're working with the the best new technology. <clears throat> and in particular, maybe you can explain this a little bit, this LVAD technology. You're um, working with people in that stage before they get a transplant. But... I'm I'm wondering I'm curious if there's if if you would also say that that there's something about working on the frontiers of what technology can do that <clears throat> I'm sorry that that points out or or that leads you in some way also to look at other kinds of therapies. Chris, so that is such a, a wonderful insight. The reality is that if you're dealing with heart failure and you say to yourself, you know, if only I could make a mechanical pump to keep this dying patient in front of me alive, then we'll have solved all of humanity's problems. Right. I'm being a bit sarcastic, but that's the simplistic mindset that certainly I wandered into this field with. And you also have patents for, for tools you've developed, I read. So, I mean, you're doing that also, aren't you? Yeah, I, exactly. I spent yeah. a lot of time trying to figure this out with the hope and the belief, <laughs> the, the passionate belief, that if I could make some of these devices work, that we could actually get folks to not die of heart disease. Well, guess what? You take someone to the opera, and I'll tell you this story because it's actually reflective yeah. of this. I had a, a, a gentleman, very, very religious man, 
religious defined by the fact that he was a church-going fellow who spoke frequently of the power of his faith. And I, I learned this later on, later on about him. But he used to drive the sand machines during the snowstorms in upstate New York. So during a particularly miserable time uh, of snowfall, he was out on the road for 36 hours. And he had a massive heart attack and basically dropped dead uh, during while, while working. He was rushed uh, by a helicopter uh, to our area and eventually to our institution where I realized that his heart had died and the only hope to keep him alive was to put a mechanical device in him, a so-called LVAD, left ventricular assist device. And these devices are pumps that act as a piggyback support system to, so, because the heart itself can't pump blood anymore. The, device, the surgery went wonderfully well. He recovered from his operation. I had never met him, remember, because he was unconscious when he came to us. And the first time he met me, he told me he wanted to kill me and then kill himself to follow. <laughs> now, th- you know, here I am giving myself a rotator cuff injury, thanking, you know, congratulating myself by patting myself on the back. And he's telling me that he doesn't want to live anymore. Why? And I started to, yeah. well, that was the, the dilemma for me. And, I re- and in talking to his wife, I learned that he had lived under the assumption that he would always play a valuable role in the world. And when he no longer could contribute to the world, he would be allowed the dignity to die. And here I had taken that dignity from him. Hmm. I had forced him now to live as, a, as his, what he perceived of as a cripple with no value, no use. And because of that, uh, he was destined to an existence he didn't want to live. So the way we dealt with this problem with the help of his wife and his pastor was to get him involved as an evangelical force within his church. And this gentleman who subsequently got heart transplanted now actually provides ministerial services for Hell's Angels, motorcycle gangs. <laughs> so it was for me a wonderful example of the fact that people crave a use in life. And if you take that from them, you have to try to replace it in another context. And that that is a part of healing. Ultimately, the healing process transcends replacing of the organ. And moves into his spirit. And that's where the disconnect happened. When you finally figure out that you've got the best technology available, when you finally climb the last technology mountain and the patient still doesn't feel well, you've got to look elsewhere. That's when we start looking in areas where we're much less comfortable, like spirituality and, and, and alternative therapies that, that bridge cultures of healing beyond uh, this country's borders. And all right, and you do use many different all uh, what we call alternative therapies, traditional therapies. I don't know. I, I guess I just want to ask you the question this way to to talk to me about some of these therapies, how you've come to them, um, and why they've come to seem important to you, and how you experience them to be working. In many cases, the alternative therapies were brought to me by folks outside of medicine. Perhaps the most profound influence has been my wife, Lisa, uh, and her family, uh, Emily Jane LaMole and, and Jerry LaMole. My father-in-law, by the way, is, uh, is a very well-known heart surgeon, but he was willing to explore alternative approaches to healing, including use of vitamins and, uh, and prayer and the like, in part because in their community, they saw healing opportunities that weren't just within a hospital. And by looking at what the actual caregivers of our country provide, remember there there, there are millions and millions of folks in the country who spend time taking care of others. Those are the actual first-line caregivers. Hmm. We don't give them enough support, uh, but they're the ones that actually play a huge role in in their local communities delivering health. And my mother-in-law, 
does this actually for a little town in Pennsylvania uh, called Bernathan, just outside of Philadelphia. And in this town, folks will frequently call her and ask her about advice at, in many different areas. Uh, some of them tr- truly alternative, other ones just because she's a smart woman who has uh, sp- philosophical and spiritual insights. And in that way, I, I learned about how people take care of themselves on the front lines outside of the hospital. But within the institution that I work in, in New York Presbyterian Hospital, in New York, I found that there were folks who came to us from all parts of the globe who had their own healing traditions that had been effective for them in the past, and they wanted to use those, but they kept feeling that we didn't want that to happen. Mm-hmm. They, would, they would abdicate all responsibility for their care once they walked into our hallowed hallways. And so we tried to change that. We tried to give them the confidence that, that to play an active role in their own recovery process by letting them use their own healing traditions. And that's how I actually learned about many of these alternative therapies. Um, so is it your sense that in other cultures where, where what we call traditional therapies are the primary therapies, is, is health care more interactive? I mean, are patients in the West more passive? I, I feel strongly that in the West we have begun to believe that Medicine offers all the solutions, and so we no longer play the proactive role we should be playing. Take Turkey as an example. You would never leave a patient in the hospital there unless you had a relative with them. Mm. In fact, the nurse gives you the pills to give the patient. You change the bedpan. You make them feel comfortable. You fluff up their pillow. Mm. In the United States, we have visiting hours. No one can see the patient. We block them out. We, we create barriers to the family and the, the loved ones playing a healing role uh, on, the, on the individual who's sick. And these are the kinds of, of disconnects that we have created because we've had so much trust in science. And, and please, I have a lot of confidence in science. I had no way wish to, to, to bash the field that I'm so proud of medicine. It's just that if we're truly going to achieve maximum healing, maximum impact, we ought to take any tool that's at our disposal, and that includes non-scientific approaches, uh, as long as they, we have evidence they don't hurt the patients. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what I'm pleading for. And you talk to me about some of your, some of the, the tools that you treasure the most. I mean, you talk a lot about hypnosis. Would that be one of your... Hypnosis is a therapy that is, I don't think, even that unconventional anymore, but mm-hmm. we have studied it in numerous different settings. There are many other individuals across the country who have also uh, done work along these lines to demonstrate that hypnosis can play a role in ailments uh, as varied uh, as hypertension to uh, the chance of, uh, of having pain after a procedure. And if you look at that gamut of opportunities, th- the thought that you could use tools like imagery – guided imagery, to change your response to an event is not surprising. We do that when we play sports, when we play music before this radio show. We get ourselves emotionally prepared. Mm-hmm. Hypnosis and guided imagery are simply tools for that. So I divide these alternative therapies into two basic camps. They're the alternative therapies where you put something in your mouth, you know, herbs, vitamins, and all those things. And let's leave those to the side because those really get into the, the, the science and medicine of what we're okay. doing. And even and then, homeopathy, would that be in that category? I, I would put homeopathy in that group as well, okay. although, of mm-hmm. course, homeopathy works in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, and, uh, and then there's the therapies that where your mind plays a role. Uh, and what we're really trying to do is to figure out how to get your mind and perhaps elements of your mind that we don't understand working with you. So let's take a big area of energy. You know, whether energy exists or not at the macro level, at the level of the human being is, is a difficult thing to tell. But we define life at the level of the cell by whether or not you have an energy level in the cell that's different from the energy level outside the cell. That's what life is. So if you aggregate those cells together into an organ, 
the heart, and you put those organs together into a body, the human, why would we think that we wouldn't have energy that's measurable and, and could be affected to make you feel better? In fact, why would we not think that disturbances of that energy might cause some of the ailments that we cannot today put a name on? So that's why I think t- therapies like acupuncture and Tai Chi and acupressure uh, and, and even the use of some of these medical treatment or medicinal treatments like homeopathy, which, uh, which mm-hmm. may affect energy levels, could actually be a, an important advance for us in medicine. If nothing else, it, it widens the vista of opportunities that we have uh, in the healing arena. So that, that's sort of an example, I think, of, of how I believe that we can use these alternative therapies. The big challenge... It is very difficult for folks to invest the resources to truly study these modalities. And because they are underfunded, it's, it's, uh, it's often impossible to envision a mechanism to truly prove, quote-unquote, right. that a therapy can be effective. So I want to ask you, um, let's say something like acupuncture. My understanding is that, is that while, say, a Chinese physician or healer and a Western f- physician might, with, while they might share a sense of basic human anatomy, they have very different paradigms for understanding how the body works. And maybe it comes back to this idea of energy. I mean, you can explain this better than I can. But is it your experience that that these different paradigms are not in contradiction but can be brought together in one medical practice? Or is there anything you're grappling with which is simply asking you to divide your mind into two and say that these are two worldviews that don't match? There are definitely situations where there are the therapies I would term as alternative would not work together well. An example might be homeopathy. Because in homeopathy, you're assuming that small amounts of a, of a product can influence the way the body responds. And because we can't predict what that response is, it's hard to use that in conjunction with a beta blocker or Lipitor. That stated, there are many, many other areas, the vast majority, where I could see them working quite effectively together. Take chemotherapy, for example, uh, which would be used against a particular cancer. It causes symptoms, nausea, vomiting, hair loss, and the like, which could be then those symptoms could be ameliorated by the use of alternative therapies. But in addition, we could use green teas and, and uh, a variety of mind-body uh, elements, including the use of music uh, and guided imagery to impact on tumor growth rates. So there I see actually more of an opportunity for complementary use uh, of the... Krista, yeah. sorry, this is... Just a second. There, something's just changed in the... It got really loud. And it's just... And the, there's somehow the the audio quality just got very distorted. Your voice got distorted. Mine did. Yeah, I mean it's not I, you. I hear but it actually. You hear it. Yeah, yeah. It just was very it. sudden in the middle of sentence. Let me, let me clear my throat. I'll say. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's you. It's 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 the line. Mitch is. Uh, How, how's the sound? Is that better? No. It's not. Uh, is Larry? Larry, are you there? It's the line. Mitch, it's the line. Yeah, it's. Well, that sounded normal. How about this? I pulled myself a little further away from the mic. Uh, it's still, it's still. We need to talk to the oh. no, um, They need to. The engineers need okay. to talk to each other. That's we need fine. a little, little audio surgery here. <laughs> this is great fun. No, it's it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful topic. Yeah. I enjoyed. Yeah. I'm gonna when we come back on. I want to tell you a quick uh, insight that I think I have about alternative medicine. Okay. Okay, they're speaking. Well, I also have a couple of patient stories that I want yeah, to tell good. you that I just, okay. I just jotted them down here. Okay, good. 
I want to know how you do all the things you do. You have a pretty busy life. I've got great, uh, great help. Yeah, really. I mean, I, and that's one issue is I'm, you know, I, I run a very tight uh, timeline, so <laughs> that's still yeah. the reason. And these folks keep me on it. Yeah, but I find it very valuable. Yeah, it's the four children that that makes it all look impossible to me. <laughs> Are you based in Minnesota? Yeah, yeah. But so, we're are the mosquitoes still out there? You know, they haven't been too bad this summer. I was just sitting on the know. porch for hours the other night and didn't see a single one. You're probably all dying of West Nile virus. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 oh, Mitch is still talking away on the phone. I don't know. Your voice sounds good to me. Yeah, I don't think mine changed. Okay, I think we're okay now. Mitch thinks we're all right now. And Krista? Uh, yes. Okay, all right. I have to stop rubbing my hands. All right. You had a story you wanted to tell oh. me. Or, so yeah. so we, you know, we, we've been speaking about alternative... I got bad again, but can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. yeah. We've been talking about alternative medicine. And from my perspective, what's really happened is the globalization of medicine. Now, now think about this, Christopher, for a second. We have global media. This show can be watched anywhere or listened to anywhere. We have global banking and finance. We have global entertainment. We don't have global medicine. <laughs> and that's because medicine is a remarkably provincial process. The doctors come from their local culture. They have the same biases as their mothers gave them. And so they go out and start practicing using therapies that they think work and ignoring ones that may work but they don't think work. <laughs> and so alternative medicine has really become the globalization of medicine. It is us incorporating healing traditions from other parts of the world. And in Sort of carrying this to its ultimate extreme, I, I, we just finished a, a, a nice study with Mitch Krukoff and the folks from Duke looking at the role of prayer in healing. Mm-hmm. And this trial, which was called the Mantra Trial, uh, was a randomized trial, but we actually got groups to pray for the patients from Tibet, from France. They were Sufis. We had, <laughs> uh, we had Baptists. We had Protestants. We had Catholics. We had groups of, of prayers from all the major religions in order to assess whether prayer might play a role uh, in the recovery of folks who had heart problems. And these, this is the kind of globalization process that I suspect will grow uh, over the next few years. Now, you mentioned the Randolph Bird study in your book, which is one of the most famous studies of prayer and healing, but it then became very controversial. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism and controversy around all of these prayer studies. So I, I am curious about where you come out on prayer as a part of healing? Well, at the outset, I should say that I I also entered into the study of prayer with some reluctance, in part because I I, I had felt that maybe we shouldn't be meddling with prayer. Maybe that was too personal. And who are we to start trying to examine something as potentially powerful and also misleading uh, as prayer? Mm -hmm. And I was comforted by uh, a pastor who told me that folks a lot smarter than I had tried to destroy religion before, and I should feel comfortable doing this research. So we began to to go after it in a fairly substantial way. And the Bird study, which demonstrated uh, a seeming benefit of prayer in folks who were in an ICU, 
uh, who in were prayed San Francisco. for, right? And they were prayed for, and the people who got prayed for did better. Uh, is a trial that is one of several that have looked at this topic, and all have been faulted because they weren't large enough and they weren't uh, randomized prospectively the way they perhaps could have been. And so we decided to put together this large 750 patient trial looking at prayer. But of course, you, you run into problems with endpoints and what were the biases of the patients. For example, 90% of the people in the trial thought they were getting prayed for already. By people so, they knew? You by mean? people they knew. Uh-huh. So it, it, be, it becomes difficult to tease out if, if your prayer is doing it or their prayer is doing it. But we did wander upon some interesting observations. And, and here's one that may uh, blow your mind, so to speak. Uh, we, there was a, a trial that had been done uh, by a group from Korea looking at the role of double prayer. In other words, not just a prayer group for your patient, but a group praying for the group praying for your patient. And this seemed far-fetched to me. I had no idea. And the reason actually they had done it was because they were in Korea and they were a Christian uh, hospital. And so they wanted people praying from the States and they wanted to power it up a little bit. So again, this is perhaps a very simplistic view of how prayer works, but nevertheless, they had seen some benefits in fertility rates in this study. So we did that. Uh, at the end of our trial. In the mantra study? In the mantra study, Mm -hmm. we saw some intriguing findings. Again, it was only the last part of the trial, but we saw changes that were enticing to us and have prompted us to want to do a follow-up study looking at that particular uh, tool and the role that it may play. But that's, you know, people get fixated on on the subtleties of the studies. At the end of the day, when you do studies on religion, you deal with religious biases. If in your heart you don't think religion will play a role, then you will find the data sets that support that. And if in your heart you think that prayer will work, then you're going to find information that supports that view. And the smarter you are, the better you are at finding data that supports your biases. And this is the fundamental disconnect we have as rational human beings trying to deal with faith. And it is a challenge that that I face day in and day out with folks who are coming to grips with what meaning their ailment has for them. And I'm reminded of a story that happened recently, it's not in the book because it it just happened in the the past year, of two fathers that came to see me, both who had heart disease. The first father came with his wife and told me that uh, he didn't really care if he survived his heart surgery. And I I said, well, that's not a good place to start off the discussion. And I, I started to probe a little bit into why he didn't care if he survived. And it turns out that his young boy, a 16 year old kid, had died in a case of mistaken identity. And this child had been his his dream child come true. He had had such a good time with the kid. He was a wonderful kid. And when they had lost their child, they had become despondent. And uh, the heart disease that occurred afterwards, this, this gentleman was almost a blessing because it might provide him an excuse to exit this uh, this planet. So I said, we're going to talk about this, and, and I sent him home. I just didn't even know how to begin to address the grief he obviously felt from losing his son, but I, needed, I knew that he could not enter any kind of, an, of a life-threatening process like heart surgery, much less life, with, uh, with that kind of an attitude. That same week, a father came in to talk to me, and, and he walked in, and the first thing he said was, Doctor, I have blockages of my arteries. You have to operate, and I have to live. And I said, well, of course you want to live. He said, no, 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 no. I don't mean to interrupt. I have to live. So it intrigued me. And I said, well, why? He said, I've got a retarded child at home. He's profoundly debilitated. I have to change his diapers. I do everything for him. If something happens to me, there will be no one there to take care of him. I have to live. Now put these together, Krista. The first father, for good or for bad, had 16 years of bliss with a wonderful child. 
The second father never enjoyed having a, 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 a game of catch with his son. He never went to the movies with his son. He never watched his son play a musical instrument. He never had the kinds of blessings the first child had. And yet he saw an element of grace in the existence that he had with this ch- uh, sick child that drove him to want to live. And when I shared this story with the first father, it changed his outlook as well. Hmm. At the end of the day, being ill, as harsh as it may sound, is a growth opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to learn more about why we're here. Some folks climb mountains. Others get to have heart surgery. I'll often tell them. Hmm. But at the end of the day, as crazy as that sounds, that's perhaps why they're having this experience. So how do all of your experiences as a doctor change your definition of... um of what quality of life means? Well, quality of life has changed a lot for me as, I, as I've witnessed patients. For me, it was initially just life. You know, being alive was quality of life. And it is true that if you're not alive, there's not much quality. But staying alive by itself is not the only goal. And we as a society have to mature our views of death and dying in order to cope with the reality that we have science now that can do more than, than we wanted to do. And quality of life has become a dominant element of my discussions with patients. I've had older Americans come to my office and tell me that although they are perfectly physically able to have surgery, they didn't have anything to live for. All their loved ones had passed along. Their families had gone their different ways. They were pretty much just biding their time waiting. And so why would they bother having life-threatening surgery that would just prolong their existence when they'd had a great, and by the way, they're not depressed. They've had a great life, mm-hmm. but, and they've done it. They're, they're, they're ready. And that is a, 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 a conversation that would have troubled me much more when I was younger. When someone tells me that now and they have good reason to what they're saying, uh, I'm accepting of that. Mm-hmm. And then you, you would not perform the surgery? I, I wouldn't. It's not even a matter of performing the surgery. As a physician, you have a precious covenant with your patient, and because they generally trust you, you can talk them into things. So it's not a matter of whether I would do it or not. It's whether I would try to talk them into something that maybe I wouldn't talk myself into when I was in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And although I, you know, I just turned forty-four, so I, you know, I can't truly identify with an eighty-eight-year-old patient twice my age who might feel this way. I begin to see the wisdom. Uh, in at least that discussion. After all, if, if you don't have a good reason for your heart to keep beating, it usually won't. And some of these folks have thought that process through better than I have. And um, I wonder, okay, I, I want to say, I'll come back a little bit to this idea of prayer, because that may be one of the ideas that's out there that is more commonly that people know about some of these prayer studies, and it may be intriguing and controversial at the same time in a more popular sense. But let's say, even if you're not a... Say, um, you said it's easy to prove this or disprove it, depending on your ideas about what's happening in prayer. But let's say you believe that what's happening in prayer, and this would be a traditional definition, is that, that, that God is acting or... It seems to me then you could have a critique of using prayer in medicine in that way or in medical studies as sort of manipulating um, the energy, uh, divine energy, or trying to do that, that there's something presumptuous in that. I mean, I I would like to know through the study you took part in and through using this technique in your work as a heart surgeon, I mean, how have you come to think about 
what the value is of prayer, what's happening in that, how that can be legitimately integrated into medical care? Well, the, the fear that we would manipulate prayer is the one that concerned me earlier on in my studies and prompted me to seek guidance about whether that was a, a, you know, a real concern. And again, I was comforted by the thought that, that at least if I didn't have a, a malice uh, or malevolent cause for doing these studies, uh, that's hopefully I, I, uh, uh, I would do good. But to be cautious about this, we never prayed in the mantra trial. We never asked the prayers to pray for the patient to survive. Okay. We asked them to pray that thy will be done. We asked them to pray for what was best for the patient to happen. So maybe if you're 85 years old and you have metastatic cancer and you've got no one left in the world, maybe the answer to the prayer is to let you go gracefully from a heart attack, which is, after all, not the worst way to go. It's painless and it's quick. So we do have to be cautious, as the saying goes, for what we, what we wish for because mm-hmm. it might come true. But I do think the opposite approach would be to ignore the potential power of prayer. And again, I I do want to be cautious. When I speak of prayer, I'm not even talking particularly of the organized religion behind the prayer. It's really the role of spirit Mm -hmm. and whether or not there is an energy behind the spirit that we can tap into and take advantage of, an energy that is spoken of in most religions and that we generally completely ignore in Western medicine because we can't measure it. It would be, I think, uh, an abdication of my responsibility as a healer to not at least look into those opportunities. And by the way, remember, Krista, I've always been intrigued by this. Uh, you, you called me Dr. Oz earlier. Now, doctor comes from a Latin root for teacher. But you would also say that I went to medical school, or medicine means healer, and physician comes from the Greek for physics or, or science. So even in the way that you call me what I am, you're describing me as a teacher, a healer, and a scientist. So I need to be either able to wear three hats on top of one another or at least shift gears between the three opportunities. And science, unfortunately, meets a roadblock once in a while. And as we wait for that paradigm-shifting understanding or insight that will allow us to, to, to go to the next level with science, which I'm confident we will do, we sometimes have to allow elements of faith or belief or insight or intuition uh, color our belief. I'll take, for example, and I, I, uh, this is perhaps a little bit off the topic, but what gave Einstein the, the idea that there were particles or waves in physics? Hmm. Is it possible that he was colored at all by looking at impressionist paintings that had been done for the past 30 years, which created light from dots? Uh, I, I think that you, it's hard to divorce yourself from the the evolution of man's thought process. And just as in that example, art colored perhaps the thinking of, of, if not Einstein, other physicists of the time, medicine and physicians uh, are colored by events in our life uh, that we don't yet understand in their context of the human body, but may in fact one day be truly what happens in the human body. We have an understanding of energy. We have a digital world. We have insights into technologies that we haven't yet applied in the context of the human body that we probably one day in our in this next generation will gain insights to. So when I read your story and read it about you, um, one thing that jumps out at me that's, that's rather simple but very profound in its effect is that while you are a highly trained, highly skilled doctor – 
you're also very open to to seeing what's happening with your patients and even experiencing the birth of your own children and and always questioning the limits of medicine and then reaching out for other uh you know for other resources and which in your case alternative um treatments and i wonder if if maybe you said you're 44 now do you think there's a generational shift i mean do you think that more doctors your age are simply more open to the complexity of the whole experience of healing and health. I, I think there are many more opportunities for younger physicians uh, to get that exposure, in part because the generation before us was still striving to figure out the basics of how to keep folks alive using science. Mm-hmm. The, to, the, in 1955, you would not have had heart surgery because we couldn't do it. In 2005, I can do two operations in the morning and be on a radio show in the afternoon. It's a completely different world. In 1955, my main goal would be to save that kid's life using new insights in science that even two years earlier didn't exist. In in 2005, I know I can save that child's life, but I know that there are elements of depression and and a disconnect that might occur in the post-operative period. And I know that even more importantly than the hole that I fixed, there are other issues that will challenge that child uh, that I need to get addressed if I'm doing my job as the healer. So the game has gotten more complicated. And because we have the the honor of standing on on the shoulders of our four bears, in, at least in medicine, we can, we can see further. I can see the mountain in the distance. I can dream about things that they didn't have the luxury of dreaming of because patients were dying in front of them f- for reasons that they thought they could easily fix. People don't die in front of us today for easily fixable reasons. We're, and for that pushes us to look a little further for, for true healing. But I think what's ironic and so interesting about it is that some of the places you're looking are ancient traditions that that previous generations of doctors would have considered to be very simple, would think that, that, that the West had outgrown, right? I mean, acupuncture that, that's, or... But, but absolutely, but that is the globalization of medicine. And okay. as we explore beyond the, 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 the borders that have traditionally limited us, it takes us to places that we're not too comfortable. But that's what it's all about. In, in a way, for me, life is about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, it's about taking yourself and the people that trust you on, on a trip, on a, on a life journey, because that's what, that's what health is all about. And we, we all have our own individual health parade through life. It's a, it's a serpentine path that takes us in places we didn't expect, but that's part of our life experience. Our job may be to incorporate approaches that we never could have envisioned playing a role in recovery. But now because we have the luxury of looking a little further, we can identify. I want to ask my producers if they have some questions, and then I have a sort of final couple for you. So I'm going to be quiet for just a minute while I listen in my of headphones. Course. Kate, are you? Yeah, that's where we're going to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, What I hear in a lot of what you're saying is maybe that, uh, you know, when we first started speaking, you described going into medicine, wanting to make the world a better place, and... And it sounds to me like being a doctor and working at the cutting edge of science, in fact, has made you perhaps a more spiritual person. Is, is that right? Is that true? 
there's no question that I've become more spiritual because of the practice of medicine, particularly because um, I wandered into, wandered into a field uh, that was high-tech. And so the illusion that I could find salvation through science alone uh, was no longer present. Can you say something about how your particular spiritual sensibility or practice has been concretely shaped by your experiences as a doctor? Well, for one, as, as I look at you know, how my spirituality has has changed, I've become more comfortable re-exploring spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time in my life uh, where I spent a lot of time thinking only on this topic. And it was actually during my college years when I was not atypically trying to just figure what the heck was going on so I can get on with my life. And as many folks do, I got on with my life. And for a 15 years or so, didn't think much about religion uh, beyond the necessary elements of making sure the kids you know, went to Sunday school or that you uh, dealt with uh, with the religious holidays. But as I've grown more and more attuned to, to what my patients are asking for, I've become more insightful to my own needs. And I, I, I do want to correct one thing you said that was kind about me. You said that I went into medicine to make the world a better place. And although I think without being falsely modest, that was truly a driving force for me. There was clearly a narcissistic element to this. Hmm. I really wanted to study me. I wanted to know what was going on. I I wanted to be an explorer, and and I wanted to know about why we were here and what we were doing here. And I thought medicine would take me there, and it has, but not all the way. And to continue the journey, I have to go beyond where science in, in its traditional context would take me. Um, and look for clues of what the next steps may be. And and spirituality helps me along that path quite a bit. In fact, a lot of my personal interest in yoga draw, comes from a recognition that I can reach a, a Zen experience, a, a blissful existence, if I can get my body, my mind calm together. And yoga does that for me as well as any other element. I, I, I appreciate hymns chanting much more today than I did when I was a, a, a school child because I see in that as a sense of peace and, 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 uh, and, and emptiness that, that frees me. Th- these are insights that I think you have to be a bit more seasoned to, at least I felt I had to be a bit more seasoned to appreciate. And without uh, the insights that medicine has provided and my teachers who are the patients have provided me, I wouldn't have wandered upon. Have you also uh, returned to some of the, to, to the Islam of your childhood, of your family? My interest in Islam has also been heightened. Uh, it, it had already been heightened prior to September 11th. Needless to say, I spend a lot more time thinking about Islam and, and where the challenges are in the religion and, and how such a wonderful religion has been perverted by some. Um, and in, way, in some ways, even held back peoples uh, because of the way that it's shaped. And again, this is yeah. perhaps not something you want to spend a lot of time talking about, but I'm, I'm always stunned by the belief that that freedom of religion is sometimes misinterpreted, or rather, freedom of religious thought is misinterpreted as freedom from religion. Yeah, and we need to make peace with that concept because spirituality, in whatever context, whatever manifestation or personification it it uh, it, it dwells in our society, uh, is difficult to divorce in its entirety from a government. That's one of the things that the United States, I think, has done 
that is so difficult to, to emulate in other countries. It's to provide people the, the ability to, to express religious freedom, uh, but without it being an element of the, of the government. You know, you have a lot of lovely quotations in your book, and, uh, Sufi quotations, and, and also Maimonides and all kinds of people talking. But there's one that's in the body of what you've written, and uh, it's William Blake. And it, there's just something in the way you put it into the text that made me think it's really meaningful for you. And I want to read it and just ask you what this means for you as a person and as a doctor. You said that Blake wrote, To see a world in a grain of sand and and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Well, William Blake uh, was actually Swedenborgian. Oh, and okay. Swedenborg is uh, the Swedish philosopher... Uh, whose writings uh, resulted in a, in a Protestant sect called, after his name, which is based in Bernathan, Pennsylvania, and it's my wife's religion. Yeah. And as I looked into spiritual writings about what different religious texts taught, I was particularly attracted to the writings of Swedenborg because they, they provided a, a clarity that I found lacking in many other traditions. And William Blake's quote so beautifully identifies that because what he's really talking about is this concept of complementarity, a term that was coined uh, actually by Niels Bohr, uh, the, the famous physicist in the 1920s. And complementarity was a term that, was, that meant that you could have two mutually exclusive mutually exclusive answers to a problem, and it could both be right. Now, how could that be? Well, in physics, it was wave theory and particle theory. It was a thought that energy could be both in a bolus and in a wave. Why? Because it didn't actually ever exist in either form. It was a tendency to exist in a particular location that defined it. And once you got past your concrete thought processes about what energy was, you could actually come to peace with this complementarity uh, reality. William Blake is talking about the same thing. How, how, can you, how can the world be in a grain of sand? How can infinity be in a second? How These are mutually exclusive possibilities. It challenges your basic underlying understanding of what reality really is. And when you move past a physical understanding of reality and start to acknowledge a, a more spiritual foundation for what reality truly is, you begin to realize that we live in a world where 99% is pretend and 1% is real. And what we're striving for as human beings is that unmodulated experience, that, one, that, that unmitigated exposure to the 1% of reality. And that's where medicine has taken me. And that's right. where patients who are struggling to survive are going. And I, I certainly hear the analogies in this idea of complementarity and, and what you are exploring and experimenting with in medicine, which might seem to some to be two very different worldviews of Western medicine and, and traditional approaches to medicine. You've it all, is, and it's all, yeah. Yeah. It's and, also the, it's mm-hmm. the beauty of it. I mean, you've also observed that, that, that traditional medicine does make room for mm, a non-physical aspect to the human being, um, to energies that, that can be involved in healing in the way that Western medicine doesn't. I mean, that same, there is this, trans, this um, acknowledgement of, of a reality of transcendence in these lines of Blake as well. Without question, there's an element of transcendence, and it's been described by my friend Larry Dossi as the non-local mind, because we begin to realize that, and this is my personal view, you asked us to speak in the personal, yeah, so I'll yeah. say my, my, my view 
is that we are like drops of rain falling into the ocean of humanity, that we are seeking that boundaryless existence where you and I have no barriers between us anymore. And the artificial ones that we have created are actually hindering our ability to find that true spiritual bliss. I think Blake highlighted that beautiful in his poetry. I think it's evident uh, in, in many of the, of the stories that, that we face in our lives, but we have to open our eyes and our ears to hear and see them. And, and that's often where our shortcoming is. That's where, crazy as it sounds, being ill offers you a growth opportunity because you're much more willing to pay attention to subtle things if you had the threat of, it being, of that experience being taken away from you. And people who are close to death often experience uh, a sense of, of a reality, of, an, of another level of reality. And, and I wonder, as a surgeon who is sometimes with people in those moments when they're hovering between life and death, do, do you experience something palpably? I, I don't normally experience the, the near-death uh, elements, in part because I'm pretty busy trying to prevent yeah. <laughs> the death. But there is no question that you sense a deep-seated loss uh, when a patient dies. And it doesn't go away. You, you can hide it and bandage it better as you get more experience dealing with death. But when someone leaves and you didn't want them to leave or you don't think they wanted to leave, the, the sense of loss is deep. It's, it's a coldness uh, that's inside of you. And it takes another person to get rid of it, either the family member uh, of the patient or uh, your own family, in my case, uh, frequently where I go for uh, for recharging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a very draining experience, and it's something that I, I suspect one day we'll be able to put numbers on and measure and quantify. But for day, uh, today, I would just call it sadness, a cold sadness. So you mean the body is still there, physically everything is in the room that was there before, but, but something it's non-tangible is... Not, something non-tangible, unmeasurable... Uh, for if I was uh, using a Harry Potter uh, analogy, I'd say there was a, you know, one of those goblins had come in and stolen my very chi, my very essence. Mm. And that's effectively uh, you know, what it's like. Imagine a Dementor swooping in mm. and, uh, and right. stealing your, your life energy. Yeah. Um, I think this is my last question. Um, it, it does occur to me that the heart is an organ a muscle, but it may be in the human imagination and poetry and literature, the most spiritual part of the body, right? We have all these phrases in our language that we use all the time. Um, A broken heart, a closed heart, a warm heart, an open heart. And I'd just be curious, after making your living working physically, medically with hearts, I mean, how do you hear phrases like that? What do they mean to you? Well, when I when I see the actual muscle itself, I, I'm continually stunned by its magnificence. And I hear these phrases, uh, and I actually always, in my mind, visualize the true muscle. And what does a broken heart look like? Uh, it's it's not a heart that has a crack in it. It's a heart where the muscles aren't they're slipping on each other. They're not twisting. And I can go on and on, by the way, with all those examples uh, that you just gave of a cold heart and, uh, and a, a stone heart and the like and equate them to, to the imagery that I have for this magnificent organ. 
But at the end of the day, I don't know if that makes me gain any more insights than I normally would have had. But certainly, for, for me, it has been uh, a wonderful journey to be able to understand in a, perhaps a way more profound than many uh, what this organ does. Hmm. Okay. Well, this is great. Yes. Wait, I'm just getting a question from across the class. Yep. Yeah. Um, we're wondering, when we put this together as a radio show, we, we like to use readings and, uh, and music that are important to people. And, and I was wondering, I mean, maybe some of the, there's poetry in your book, but if you have any thoughts about, um, I don't know, maybe Sufi poetry or... Yeah, there, there's, uh, well, I mean, I, the, 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 obviously, uh, Rumi, I'm a big yeah, fan of. Yeah. Uh, there, there's been some nice recent works using uh, with Sufi poetry. Yeah. But I would actually, I like some of the Central Asian music. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, these, these tunes were created, they're called five-tonal music. They were actually created f- for their healing potential. Okay. And we have done a little bit of work on them, not enough to publish, but uh, there, there's a guy named, uh, uh, well, you, actually, you'll ever find this. I could send this to you if you wish. It's okay. a CD that, of, that he cut. He, there's a lot of water, that would be uh, I mean, really, yeah. really wonderful to have that. Okay. And we so would if you use give me it. A qu- if you give me a quick, or you have my, you have my email, right, Krista? Yeah, Kate, my Kate Moose. She, do you have Kate? Kate She's Moose, in I have touch her number with here. Michelle. Can you okay. give me your email and maybe she could sure. send you at Columbia. Okay. Okay, Kate will just remind you of this and and then you'll. Okay. And send I will you an FedEx address. it out today. That's great. Uh, when I get back. That's great. And I'd love to send you a show we created on depression, the soul and oh. depression, which I would love people to see love, it. and it's really sure. trying it, to get to at this uh, the spiritual aspect of depression, which gets lost in our conversation about the medical treatment of depression. <laughs> you know. Anyway, this would, has been really delightful. No, the pleasure was mine. I, I, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I hope it did. works out well when you cut it. Yeah, and Kate will also be in touch with you and let, let you know. I, I, I think we're, we've got a lot going on right now, partly with the election. So it, it we'll probably be producing this in the fall, September, October. But that, we'll let fine. you know, and, uh, and she'll send you an email. Thanks so Great. much for making the time to do this. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. American Public Media. 